Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 22. We'll be closing out chapter 22 and going into the book of 2 Kings as well. You'll find that on page 306 of your pew Bible. And it really is a joy and a privilege to be bringing God's word to you this morning. And as Carl prayed, it has been a year. In fact, yesterday marked the one year that Courtney and I moved here from Charlotte. And it's hard to believe it's been a year, but it really has been a wonderful year getting to know you as uh, the body of Christ, getting to serve these students. Although I'm not sure they've enjoyed me that much, but we'll get behind that. Um, but it, is a, it has been a, a true joy and a privilege to, to serve you guys here and have loved every minute of, a, minute of it. Well, let's turn to God's Word in 1 Kings chapter 22. And if you'll remember last week, we saw the end of Ahab, that wicked king who took Jezebel as his wife. And if you remember, God had promised judgment, but then in his repentance, whether feigned or uh, true, God had in his mercy uh, held back judgment and had saved it for the days of his son And really it would be the days of his sons, because as we'll see, Ahaziah, his first son, has only a two-year reign. And it's actually in his second son, Jehoram, that we see this promise coming true. And yet, still, even in the life of Ahaziah, we see God's judgment upon the line of Ahab, what's called the Amrad dynasty, coming upon them. So let's turn our attention to the book of 1 Kings chapter 22. We'll begin in verse 51 and then go, to the, go through 2 Kings chapter 1. Here's God's word. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go, inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And he said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. 
Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again the king sent to him another captain of fifty men with his fifty. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him. O man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties. But now let my life be precious in your sight. And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him, do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king, and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken, Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? Thus ends God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, it is a light to our feet. Father, it makes our path straight. Father, I pray now that you would send your spirit and Open our hearts and our eyes, Lord, for what you have in it for us today. Lord, you be with me. Guide my heart, my lips, and my mouth, Lord, as I seek to proclaim the excellencies of Christ and the warnings of straying from God. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning, as we're continuing to work through our series on the book of Elijah and soon to be Elisha, we have reached a sort of turning point in our series. It's a turning point both because this is the final prophetic act that we see Elijah making before he is taken up to heaven. It is a turning point in the line of Ahab, as we talked about before in this Omrad dynasty. It is the beginning of the end for Ahab's line as Ahaziah will fall, and then soon after that, Jehoram. But it's also a turning point in the in the northern kingdom of Israel, and really in the book of Kings itself, not only being the division of the new chapter of 2 Kings. Just by way of reminder, this collection of books that we call First and Second Kings was written sometime in that Babylonian exile, sometime between 586 and 533 B.C. <clears throat> and it was written, the writer was looking at where God's, had people, God's people had found themselves, whether scattered to the nations by Assyria or now locked in exile in Babylon, and was asking, how in the world did we get here? How in the world did we go from being God's chosen people to being God's derelict people? How have we strayed so far? <clears throat> Now, Ahaziah reigned in around 850 B.C., so the fall of Israel in 722 would not happen for another 130 years or so. But we see a, a, te- a note in this text that is telling us that this is the beginning of the end for Israel. It's the beginning of the end 
for that northern kingdom. And you see it right there in verse 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Moab, this, the kingdom that had for so long, since the kingdom of David had been subject to God's people, had finally freed itself. For the first time, God's kingdom was starting to fall apart. And it marked, in many ways, the beginning of the end, right? From here on, it is only a downward spiral, a slow disintegration of the northern kingdom until it is finally fully done with by Assyria in 722. And as, this, as we reach this turning point, this hinge on which so many things turn, the author of Kings is also returning to the question that drives him. What went wrong? And as the story he tells us today, the story of Ahaziah, Elijah, and Beelzebub, the answer to that question is very simple. Israel no longer followed the God who brought them up out of the land of Israel. And the author of Kings is asking both the audience who would read it, this uh, people in exile in Babylon, he's asking them and he's asking us, who do we trust in? Which God do we trust in? And his main message is very plain, that we as God's people are to trust in Yahweh alone. We are to trust in Yahweh alone. And trust in anything else, no matter how guaranteed or how certified or how sure a thing it may be, is an act of utter rebellion against the Lord God. And so we'll be looking at that one idea, what it means to trust God. And under that, we'll be looking at first that if we are to trust God alone, then he must be our first and only source of hope. Not a second or third or fourth option, but our first and only option. But also, he is a God who cannot be coerced or bargained with. As the God whom we trust, he cannot be bought, coerced, or bargained with. So first we come to this idea that Yahweh alone is to be trusted first and foremost and solely above all else. So Ahab, Ahab has died. Ahaziah, his son, has taken the throne. And as I said, it's the beginning of the end for the line of Ahab, for the beginning of the end for Israel. And really we see at the beginning of this that it's also the beginning of the end for poor Ahaziah. Right, right off the bat, we see that he falls through a latticework in his palace. Right, you can imagine he maybe has a, you know, an upper deck where he can walk around and see his kingdom, and there's some sort of grating, maybe made of wood or metal, that allows air and light to come into his, his palace. And whether foolishly or perhaps something went wrong, he stepped on this and fell through, right, falling maybe a story or two. He lies sick wounded, badly injured, and yet he was raised, remember, in the house of Ahab and Jezebel. And so like a good son of Ahab or Jezebel, he knows who he's going to turn to. And he sends for what we see there, Beelzebub. Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover 
from this sickness. He is sending for what is, could be translated as the Lord of the Flies, right? That, that almost villainous story by William Golding. He is sending for the Lord of the Flies to discover what will happen. And we actually have, as my seminary professor noted for us once, we actually have some Canaanite documents talking about this god, Beelzebub. And it seems that the Canaanites believed that flies were the source of sickness, right? So it was when we were sick, then the flies would gather around us that we were actually get, getting our sickness from them. And so Beelzebub was believed to have the power to ward off flies, right? To send them away and in that remove any sickness or illness or injury that someone might have. And this is the God to whom Baal is going to. But we need some historical and sort of geographical context to understand the choice that he's actually making. Right? It's not as simple as he grew up in the house of Baal worshippers, so he's going to find a Baal to go to. Or it's not just that he heard that Beelzebub offered some really good medicinal treatments for injury. But instead, we, as we will see, this was an, implicit, or an explicit act of rebellion by the king of Israel against the God of Israel. And we can see that because we see that he sends to Ekron. Now to show, get, lay it out geographically for you, so Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom, was about 50 miles or so north of that border between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And just south of that border, about six miles or so, was the capital city of Jerusalem, a capital city of Judah, Jerusalem, where the temple of God was. And then just west of that was what is called the uh, Philistine states. Right? And the Philistine states, you all know the Philistines, uh, the, the, the constant enemies of God's people. And these city-states were made up of five cities that you probably have heard of, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, Gaza, and lastly, Ekron. Many of you probably recognize these names, and you know that all of these names are not associated with good things. Gath was Goliath's hometown. Ashdod was where the um, Ark of the Covenant found itself before the Temple of Dagon. And each of these cities are condemned time and time again all throughout biblical prophecy as cities that would face God's judgment. So very simply, these, the people of Ekron, these Philistines, were not just some neutral observers of God's people. These were the constant enemies of God and of Israel. And not just that, not only was it the constant enemies of God's people, but as luck would have it, it is almost on the exact same longitudinal plane as Jerusalem. Now, you may be saying, Christian, we're not here for geography, don't care that much. But think about this. So Samaria created almost a perfect triangle with Samaria in the north, Jerusalem, the temple of God, and the southern kingdom, and then just west of it, I guess maybe for you here, just west of it here is Ekron. It's the same distance from Ekron to Samaria as it is from Jerusalem to Samaria. So this was no mere pragmatic option. This was no mere, it's the closest option available. Instead, what we see is that 
Ahaziah thought he had a better chance going to this Lord of the Flies than going to the house of the Lord who has saved them. Almost willfully passing by the house of the Lord to go to the house of flies. So think about that. That is the, this is the king of Israel. And again, we've seen time and time again, Israel's kings have been uh, no good people. right? But that is no excuse for the king of Israel who's supposed to be the leader of God's people. The one who is to set the example for how they are to act. And here he is, willfully passing by the house of God, choosing to go to the house of flies. This was the God that Ahaziah chose to rely upon. And again, you may be thinking, maybe he, maybe you aren't thinking, but it could be possible thing. maybe he's just spreading his wealth out, right? He's trying his best options. When I was growing up, my mother, when I was about 13, 14, began her many futile attempts to get me to invest in the stock market. And I say futile because I still have no idea what any of those words or symbols or anything mean. And the one rule she always told me was to never put your eggs in one basket. Right? Never put all your money into one stock. Never put all your hope into one platform. And then she told me about these beautiful things called mutual funds, right? Because mutual funds, they're in all sorts of different stocks, right? You get all these different options. So if one fails, it's all right. You've got like 30 others to keep you afloat. And we often carry that rule, never put your eggs in one basket. We often carry that rule over to our entire lives, right? We need to sprinkle our dependence into different things, so sure, we come to church, find our hope in God, find our spiritual satisfaction there, but then we also want to you know, make sure we've got a good retirement. Want to make sure that our kids are doing well. Want to make sure all this, these other things, this, that, and the other. Yet we see, as this passage tells us, that if our hope is not in God and God alone, then it is not in God at all. It is not in God at all. See, Ahaziah's going to Beelzebub constituted and revealed a full-scale rebellion against the God of Israel. It was a final act of treachery against this God. And it revealed what was there this whole time. It revealed the heart of a man who constantly turned to Baal. And we see that in the, the, the words of condemnation that God brought upon Ahaziah. You'll see it there. He says, three times, he says, you shall surely die. You shall surely die. And this phrase, you shall surely die, it's really not repeated as often as you would think throughout Scripture. And in fact, it's only on the lips of the Lord a few times. And yet one of those times, most infamously, not infamously, most famously, was all the way back in the garden. Right? When he said, if you eat this tree, you shall surely dry, die. That consequence, death, which looms so large over our life now, 
right, was brought before Ahaziah as the final punishment for his rebellion. This rebellion that Ahaziah has undergone was the same rebellion from way back in the garden. Ahaziah, this king, was in the highest of heights. He was the king of Israel, first off. This palace that he fell through was known in Samaria as the Ivory Palace. Probably not only built fully of ivory, but also decorated with some of those beautiful ivory carvings the ancient Near East ever, ever saw. It was truly a place of splendor. And yet he, like all of us will, sooner or later, came within spitting distance of his own mortality. And what did he turn to? Because everyone turns to something, right? Everyone turns to something when life is on the line. And what did he turn to but the Lord of the Flies? And this is the thing that Ahaziah's life teaches us as one who claimed to be the king of Israel, who laid claim over the people of Israel, is that we can claim to be one of God's people. We can appear to trust in him, but when our life is threatened, when death comes knocking, when the things we hold most dear seem to start coming apart at the seams, that is when we make clear who we are actually serving. It is then, and only then, when it all comes down to the end, that you actually start to see who or what you rely on. And in those moments, right, in our acts of fullest trust, there is no little bit here, little bit there, little bit of hope in modern medicine, little bit of hope in how much money I have saved up, and then Last but not least, I'll, I'll pray to God, too, just every once in a while. Right? See, to divide it in any other way than fully in the hands of the living God, we find that we have given him nothing at all. And we show that our trust is really in ourselves, in our jobs, in our health, in our wallets, whatever it may be. And yet as the true And living God, Yahweh demands to be our first and only hope. Not the first among many or some sort of last-ditch effort, but our first and only hope. Psalm 27 says, Some men trust in chariots, some men trust in horses. And we can replace that with some men trust in how the stock market is doing. Some men trust in their latest medical marvel, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. When you look at your hearts, when you look at your minds, do you really confess with Jonah that salvation belongs to the Lord, that help comes from the Lord? Because when we get down to it, Our hearts are always filled with rebellion. Our hearts are always filled with those little inklings of maybe there's another option out there. And we need to turn time and time again, as Carl said in the reading, we need to mortify ourselves time and time again 
to see the God who is salvation himself. But to our second point, not only must he be our first and only option, but he also cannot be bargained with or coerced. See, Ahaziah hears the news and he realizes that he's in quite a pickle. He realizes that this is not good news. It can almost remind me of Seinfeld, right? When he asks the, the, the messengers, what do you look like? And he describes to him, he says, oh, that's Elijah. Remember in, in Seinfeld, the constant Newman, right? He always recognizes Newman's behind something. Well, Elijah is always behind something for Ahaziah, always messing up the plans that he has. And he looks to bring Elijah in before him. And the text isn't exactly explicit on what he's planning to do, but it seems clear that he's seeking to get Elijah to renounce this prophecy in some shape or form, whether through bribery or violence. He was looking for Elijah to renounce this prophecy. And really this goes back to how all other prophets worked. Right? So the king, like we saw with Ahab and Jezebel, having 450 prophets of Baal, kings of ancient Near East would hire prophets, paying them to discern the will of the gods. As in, and as is the case with all employment, and whenever there's opportunity for money and power, there is also corruption. And so these prophets, whether they be of Baal or Ashtoreth or whatever it may be, could be persuaded, right, to give the king a better answer. It could be suggested to them to give them a new prophecy. And that is perhaps what is driving Ahaziah here, looking to get Elijah to change the word of the Lord. And so he sends three separate captains to Elijah to retrieve him. And really the attitude of the captains shows the attitude of the king. The first comes up and he sees Elijah sitting on the hill and boldly he commands him to come down. And this command was not only directed at Elijah, but it was also directed at God. And yet protecting both his prophet and his glory, the Lord consumes instantly the, pro- the captain and his men. And yet again, Ahaziah is showing that he probably wasn't the brightest kid in school. He sends another captain, right? And yet this one is even more impatient than the last one. Come down quickly, he says. But not only that, but you see where it is translated there. This is the king's order there in, um, let's see, in verse 11 there towards the end. Oh, man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. Well, we see that is the same Hebrew construction for what would be translated there in verse, 7, verse 16. Thus says the Lord. This is really the captain saying, thus says the king. The king and the captain both are making themselves out to be God. And really it goes about as well for this captain as it did for the last captain. And yet even still, Ahaziah doesn't learn. He sends a third captain. But this time the captain learns. Right? This time the captain shows himself to be one who fears God 
rather than one who fears the king. Right? He pleads for mercy. He says, entreats for him to have mercy upon him and to let his life and the life of those 50 men be precious in his sight. And finally, Ahaziah gets the meeting he's been after with Elijah. And yet when he finally sees Elijah face to face, the words do not change. And for the third time, we see the word of the Lord declared to Ahaziah. And without skipping a beat, the author of Kings shows us its fulfillment. So he died. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. And here's the plain and simple truth that this passage is teaching us here. That God will not be mocked. God will not be coerced by the power of a king. He will not be strong-armed by physical force. He will not be argued with by our most intellectual, by our best and brightest. He will not be summoned by corruption or power. But he is, as Deuteronomy 4.24 says, a consuming God that he is a jealous God. God himself will not be mocked. God will not be coerced. To the prideful, to the wicked, those who think they can coerce and control God, he is a God who consumes with holy anger and righteousness. He is a God who consumes with holy anger and righteousness. When I was a young, young man, fresh out of high school, thinking the world was my oyster, I had one refrain that played in my mind, my heart, and my mind as I lived my life as I wanted. I had this one phrase that I kept telling myself as I lived contrary to all that I knew the Lord had asked me to. This was it. Was this, Lord? Just let me have my fun. Let me do the things I want to do. Let me, you know, let me me party. Let me go to college. Let me get the job I want. Let me do the things I want to do. And then, once I get all that, twenty-seven, twenty-eight, twenty-nine, then I'll come back to you. Then I'll serve you. Then I'll devote my life to you. And who did I think I was to barter? with the king of the universe. Right? When I was no king of Israel, I wouldn't have described myself then as per- particularly wicked, though surely I was. And yet my posture was exactly the same as Ahaziah's. Right? God, come, come, come when I tell you. Right? God came at my beck and call. But what this passage is teaching us today is that God summons us. We do not summon him. See, if you're not a believer in Christ today, or perhaps like me in my foolishness and arrogance, you have confessed Christ but are pushing that day to final commitment further and further away, 
Do not be so naive as to think that you will be given another chance. God is merciful, yes, and he is slow to anger, and he is abounding in steadfast love. But this passage teaches us he will not be mocked. He will not submit himself to the whims and the wishes of the proud. He cannot be coerced. He cannot be bought. However, and this is the gospel shining forth in this passage, he hears the humble. And one of the many great and glorious truths of the gospel is that in the gospel, the God who is a consuming fire, who consumes the wicked and the proud and the arrogant, suddenly becomes and is called Father. We see him as the one who counts precious the lives of his saints. And it does not matter how many times you have showed yourself a rebel, how many times you have pushed off God and relished in your own sin, how many times you have walked right by the house of God to serve the Lord of the Flies. If you humble yourself today, repent, and believe in Jesus, you will be saved. See, God cannot be bought. He cannot be coerced. But he has given his son for us. And only by him and him alone will we find him as a father. See, 200 years after Ahaziah would come, there would be a king in Judah named Manasseh. And both kings and chronicles tells us that he was perhaps the most wicked king both kingdoms ever saw. Kind of exemplified mo most in him sacrificing his son to the gods that he had served. It was so bad that God, after Manasseh, says, that's it, wash my hands of, it, of Judah. It's their time to go as well. However, Kings leaves out something that we discover in 2 Chronicles 33. And that is that Manasseh, the most wicked king Israel or Judah had ever seen, repents. He repents, and we know it's a true repentance because the author tells us he knew Yahweh to be God. And the Lord has mercy upon him. And if the Lord can have mercy upon a king as wicked as Manasseh, as foolish and arrogant as one like myself, then surely he will have mercy on you as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the message of the gospel and that we who constantly choose other gods and other things to serve, who place money and power and wealth and so many other things above you, Lord, that you still come to us and call to us and extend mercy to us in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that those who do not know you this morning would see you as a God who loves them, Lord, and not as a God who wishes them ill, but wishes them good and gives them good things. Father, would you show us our pride and our arrogance and humble us in the light of the gospel by the power of the Spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.